Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, Stein's National Marketing and Sales Director, David Thompson. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert Stein insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about the products in the company that maximizes yield potential. Today's episode, we're meeting with Warren Stein. Warren is the Assistant Director of Corn Research for Stein Sea Company. So his primary focus is on breeding and development of our proprietary corn inbreds and hybrids. Uh, he also helps manage our retail corn portfolio. So today, Warren is going to talk to us about the history of our corn breeding program, uh, from the origins of the program, uh, what we do in terms of uh, breeding and development work, and what makes uh, Stein's corn breeding program unique. Welcome to the show, Warren. Uh, thank you, David. So to get us started, I guess, give us a little bit of background about your history and your history with the company. <laughs> uh well, I've been here for a long time. <laughs> uh, you know, our corn program started in 1978. And uh, in 1978, that summer, I would have been nine years old. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't remember a whole lot about the inception of this. I've had to ask, you know, my father uh, questions about that. Um, and, uh, as I grew up, I got to know people, become more familiar with people in the corn program. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I would say I grew up with this program and I grew up getting to know people in there and, uh, absorbed by osmosis, uh, most of what I know, uh, it wasn't necessarily like I was an integral part of this program ever <laughs> until I got out of college. Uh, much, much later. Sure. But, you know, you worked, you worked on the farm growing up and, uh, refresh my memory prior to the corn program. Did you work on the soybean side? Um, all of us actually started working kind of on the soybean side, doing a thing we call dumping beans. Now the soybean program, uh, originally when it was initiated, every single yield trial plot was harvested and the, the seed from that individual plot was kept in a bag of some description. And uh, when we were kids, our job was to uh, sit in a small wooden grain wagon and uh, dump these bags out because we reused these bags every year. And these would be those small, like three or four pound Seed bags that would, yeah. Yes. Well, and there were two different tests at the time. And so one set of tests went into a large paper envelope, which had two paper clips at the top. So we had to save the paper clips too, along with the envelope. And the other test was into a, it was a cloth bag with a wire uh, tag wrapped around the top of it. Uh, and we got, um, well, well, so those bags were put into a large flour sack. Uh, is what it was. And you would have a hundred paper envelopes in one bag, you know, these flower bag and a uh, hundred cloth ones in each, you know, one of those flower bags. And you'd get 
55 cents for dumping all 100 bags out of, uh, of the paper kind, and you got 35 cents for dumping everything out of the cloth one. And so we'd sit in this wagon all day long in the back of a warehouse uh, just dumping these bags. And to, and to give a frame of reference, we're talking about thousands and thousands yes, and the thousands warehouse. of bags. You'd look, you'd look out of the wagon across the warehouse, <laughs> and it was just solid bags of these across the floor. So so in those days then, were you thinking, okay, maybe the corn program is a better uh, use of my time and talent, didn't, even as a you know, youngster? <laughs> didn't know anything anything about the corn program at that time. This, you know, I, think, I think I might have actually started doing that when I was six. Okay. Um, and so, so it wasn't an hourly pay. You got paid by the bag. That's sure. true. My parents thought that was a smarter thing, but all four of us kids, you know, Lucinda, Brenda, and Myron would sit in that wagon and, and do that. Okay. So when, when the corn program started going, uh, so that was like, I think I said earlier, that was about 77, 78, um, I didn't have any engagement really with it until I was probably about 12. And that's when I started doing hand pollinating. And uh, that summer, you know, my parents presented me with the idea that, well, you can either cross soybeans or you can pollinate corn and you should try both and then decide which one you liked. And so I went and tried soybean crossing, which, you know, soybean flowers are just uh, minuscule, very teeny tiny, and you have to use a pair of tweezers uh, to tear the flower apart. So, you know, you get the male parts off the flower you want to use as a female, and then you have to take the male parts from another flower and apply them to that at an individual node on that soybean. It's so easy to knock these flowers off. I kept doing that over and over. You'd strip all the sepals, all the petals off this thing and uh, get it just about to the point where you're prepared to do your cross on it. Then, boop, you'd knock it off the <laughs> off the node. Uh, so I did that for basically a day and decided <laughs> I had no aptitude. I had no skill. I was not going to go that route. So I literally walked across the lane at the back of the office to the corn nursery. And uh, there was a lady there at the time named Donna Williams who uh, thought, okay, we'll give you a try. And this could be good because um, I was tall when I was 12 and uh, we had a lot of tall material at that point in time. And that just seemed like a good fit. So she showed me that it was much simpler. You know, all you have to do is put a bag up on the tassel and you later on put a bag down on the silks. That's a pretty easy process. You don't worry about knocking the whole ear off or necessarily <laughs> the tassel off the plant. Um, Pretty straightforward, so I, I stuck with that. And so never look back. Never look back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Not gonna go try that sort of thing again. <laughs> so you know, I think one of the things when I talk to farmers that I think they're fascinated by is just the fact that Stein's corn program dates back into the 1970s. I think I think it's maybe a, a guarded secret that they weren't really aware of how long uh, the company had been working on those things. And I know, you know, you're a great student in history, so I wonder if you kind of give us an idea about the origins of that. I mean, is it something that was always in your father's mind from the beginning that, you know, corn was something they wanted? And I know we, he was working with other crops. Anyway, just give me an idea of the kind of the how that came about. Well, I think the story goes that um, as dad 
had worked with soybeans, people were telling him the next thing you need to do is work with, with corn. And uh, one of the people he was having conversations with was, I, I believe it was Noel Callahan, and there was a company called Callahan Seed, uh, which was a, a pretty significant player in the industry back, uh, back in the 70s. And uh, Noel, I think, even recommended some publicly available corn inbreds that my dad should be working with. And at any rate, dad put these, uh, accessed all these things through the different universities at the time, set up some, what we call an isolation block, which is a small field where you have a, a common pollinator, but, but you have different females spread out across the isolation block. And uh, I believe that was in 77 when he chose to do that. And there may have been three or four different isolation blocks. And an interesting, very trivial little bit of history is uh, he had back surgery in, must have been the spring of 77. I don't know if he'd slipped a disc. He'd, he'd done something. Okay. And so he was still recovering from that. And then all of a sudden found out that he had to do uh, a bunch of detasseling. And I, I think he was pretty miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he realized it was going to be quite that that trying uh, when he got started with that. But at any rate, the material from that, I believe, was either the following year self-pollinated uh, there at Adel, or it was uh, sent to Hawaii and uh, pollinated there, and then brought back. You know, you get an extra generation, moving things along that that way. At some point. Early on in there, I know my mom actually went to Hawaii to actually do some of that pollinating one winter. And uh, it may have been about the same time we picked up Donna Williams. And I don't know if that was 1981 or 1982. Um, And I did make a little note here. Our first yield trial was in 1981. Okay. uh, When we had our first early generation hybrids ready to test. And uh, we had 6,000 of those that year spread out across four locations, which uh, were all in Iowa and all actually pretty close to uh, Adel. Sure. An interesting thing when you talk about corn genetics and germplasm, and we look back in our program, most of that early material has not survived. It's actually almost all went into the trash pile. By about, I would say by about 1993, 94, most of it was, was, was gone. There were very few things left. Uh, from those first few years. At any rate, sometime after that first yield trial, I think we actually picked up another gentleman for our, our, our corn department, a guy by the name of James Mace. And Jim and Donna have both passed away within the last couple couple of years, which is too bad you can't talk to him and right. ask questions that I you know, should have asked. But uh, Donna kind of ended up managing our corn nursery and Jim would take care of harvesting yield trials and uh, detasseling in our isolation blocks uh, that we had set up. But we kept expanding the program from, from that point. This is another interesting little bit of trivia. If you go to the Adel office, uh, there is an old, really run-down, crappy, green metal sheeted building there. Oh. And there was... One room on the west side of that uh, building, which I don't know if it was maybe 30 feet by 
25 feet, but all of our corn and soybean people worked in that one room together uh, <laughs> until uh, the mid-90s when we built our next office building. And then we, then we started segregating them. They didn't get along. You couldn't have them in the same room anymore. Uh, but they would sit in there all winter and uh, hand shell uh, corn or clean soybeans up for you know, package stuff. Uh, the entire program out of that, that one little teeny room, uh, which just kind of blows my mind uh, when, you, when you think about that. Let's see, what else can I say about that? I think we only had one planter at that time, too, for both really? research programs. And then when we got two planters, well, that was a big deal. <laughs> and then we had to have two vans uh, because you had to load them up with seed to take to their you know, different locations. But <laughs> both of those Vans, both of those planters were actually run by the soybean department pretty much because it was growing a lot faster than the corn department ever. Well, and it would seem to me, you know, that, I mean, obviously the basic building blocks of a breeding program are, are similar. However, the crops themselves are more different from a breeding standpoint than one might assume. So were there, uh, were there growing pains or kind of aha moments like, oh, okay, this is, this is different because obviously the soybean program is really well established by that point. Um, I, I guess I'm just curious what those well, earliest years were kind of like. <laughs> That's a really good question. I like to point out to people that soybeans, quite honestly, I think is easy. It is a self-pollinated crop. And as long as, uh, you know, in a plot situation, you haven't got seed spread from one plot to another that that individual plot, when you harvest it, that's that's good to go for next generation. That's what we used to do. Corn does not work like that at all. <laughs> it's a naturally wind-pollinated crop, and it's very, very easy to get contamination into things. And um, that, you have to be more focused. It takes more uh, labor to get things done correctly. Uh, there's all kinds of trouble that you can get into with corn. I don't believe we ever had a set of circumstances where there was like a big disaster, but you would lose individual items uh, here and there because of uh, contamination from time to time. Sure. Or at least have things where you'd be set back a generation. Uh, but there was never, we never had a, it was like, oh my gosh, this is a, a disaster. We had a really good set of pretty dedicated people that, that did everything they could to make sure we wouldn't have that kind of a scenario on unfold yeah it gets really stressful uh during pollinating when you've got people to watch and you've got to worry about that exact kind of thing so you just touched on you know the fact that you know once you get done with a soybean cross you know that you have basically a new variety right and as long as you don't do anything to kind of mess that up it's every time you plant that you're kind of getting similar result corn like you said there's a lot of steps involved so Real briefly, can you kind of go through, you know, um, the steps in the process? Because one of the things that makes our organization special is the fact that we are one of a handful of companies that does our own breeding work. And to do that, there are, you know, the various steps in that process. Could you review that real quick? On corn or soybeans? Or corn. Or just, corn. Yeah. So corn, you're, you know, a hybrid that has been commercialized that people are buying as two parents. And both parents have to go through a development and testing process uh, to get a parent 
finished for commercialization usually is about eight generations where you're self-pollinating every single generation. And up to that point, you've got things segregating every single generation. So in, so in our case, what we do is we'll make uh, an, an initial cross between two really good parents and uh, seed that gets crossed. If we make the cross in Iowa, we'll send it in our right now to uh, Guyana in South America. We're the only company working down there. It will stay down there for uh, four more generations of self-pollinating. The last generation, there'll be some seed that uh, goes into an ISO block, and uh, another pile of seed will actually get sent back to Iowa to be self-pollinated some more the following summer. The seed that goes into that isolation block down there will get used to make a hybrid. It'll be used as a female in a test cross. And so we, uh, once that cross is made, you test that in Iowa and have uh, your next development, next generation of material getting selfed again in Iowa. If it survives the test, you keep the rows that you selfed here in Iowa. If it doesn't, it goes into the trash. Most of the time, most of what we're working on in our nursery is, you know, goes in, it's, it's garbage. About 95% of your early generation stuff goes into the trash. Uh, but you still have to self-pollinate it and keep pushing it along until you get test results that say that you can you know, make that decision to do that. So as an example, you know, this last year we evaluated 50,000 hybrids of first-generation testing. There's only going to be just a few percent of that that you're actually going to keep. Uh, so most of that went into the trash. The items you keep go into, uh, they'll get selfed again. You'll make new hybrids. You'll, you'll have items segregating out of that, we would call it a line that you've kept. So we'll get what we call sub-selections or selections. Get four or five of those to segregate out of that line and you have to make hybrids with each one of those selections. Every one of those hybrids gets tested in the next year's test test seed. Sometimes we can make it in Adel, but generally that test seed is getting made in uh, either Argentina, Chile, or Guyana yeah. during the winter. So that comes back, goes into that, that trial, and you'll try to pick out the best one of those selections to move ahead with the following year. And if you've got something that looks really, really good, something really red hot, not only will you additionally self that one more time, but you'll actually look at potentially bulking that up, having multiple rows of that uh, selection that you kept, assuming it's uniform enough uh, so you can get seed together and maybe put out pilot seed, something that could go into a strip trial that next year. So that's literally just getting seed enough to do, like you said, testing or foundation for Parent seed. Yeah, parent seed foundation. Yeah. 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 Over the course of time, you know, the last, what has it been, you know, 50 years now, what are some of the things that have changed about how corn breeding happens? Well, that's, that's a really good question. For us, surprisingly enough, not that much. We're using some markers. Markers are very commonly used uh, by just about everybody in the industry. But there are some tools out there that have become very popular with other seed companies that we're not utilizing. We don't have a dihaploid program. Uh, most people are using a dihaploid program, which for people that don't know what that is, uh, 
when you're making your brand new population for inbred parents, you apply a kind of a critter that allows you to go in one generation to supposedly 100% pure on a, on a new inbred. Okay. It's not quite that simple, but for the sake of conversation today, we don't use dihaploids because we like the idea of getting things to segregate out every single generation in the development process instead of going to that 100% pure right away. So we don't do that. And then a lot of people are using um, sort of predictive analysis to try to tell them ahead of time which inbreds they need to be moving ahead, what's what's the hybrid going to look like, try to make a model, a mathematical model to tell them if we put inbred A and inbred B together, the hybrid is is going to look like this. And we're not quite into that. And that uses markers, once again, to support that. But we don't do anything like that either. We'll use markers to to give us an idea of uh, maybe family backgrounds, give you some idea of Maybe these things uh, might have more disease resistance than this material over there, but some some general stuff and not the specific quite the specific things that other people are using. Now, soybean department uses more markers than we do on the corn department. So it sounds like whether it's you know dihaploids or some of these predictive analysis, you know, really it's about well, it depends on your point of view, I guess. You know, one would say trying to use this as a predictive tool to find efficiency. Uh, the flip side of that is, is it a, a shortcut of sorts, right? Can we shortcut the system so it doesn't take as many generations to do what we need to do, right? That's right. And we're of the opinion right now that that is just not the best direction to go. We don't think that works uh, quite so well. We follow what I would describe as a very naturalistic approach to breeding. I don't know if you want to call it Darwinian, uh, sort of survival of the fittest. We have a program that we let Mother Nature kind of sort through things, let her do her thing, uh, try to capitalize on that. Not so much using some of these tools. And at the end of the day, you know, when you start looking at the the resources people are putting into uh, developing these tools, how expensive they are, the level of efficiency, we think uh, rather than building models of stuff, why don't you just yield test it? By the time you've got enough data points put together to make some characterizations of how these things are going to work when they interact, you're at the point where you might as well run a yield trial anyway uh, in terms of timeline. Uh, so we just don't see the advantage. Talk a little about the size and scope of the program. Because I know, you know, I think one of the things we've always been adamant about is, you know, size of, of the test is important, right, for finding the very best material. So over time, you know, what's been the growth of, of the corn breeding program? Oh, boy. Well, I think I just mentioned earlier that this last year we evaluated 50,000 hybrids first time. And uh, that's, that's the entry level tier. And the next tier after that, uh, we had uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 hybrids this year. Uh, the difference between those, those two tests, the two tiers, 
is that uh, the first level tier, we only have uh, either 10 reps or 10 locations. That next tier up, we triple that. We want 30 plus reps or 30 plus locations. Get that hybrid out in a lot of different environments across the Midwest and see how it behaves in those environments to kind of sort through those things. But it, in terms of, of volume, you know, 50,000 hybrids is, uh, that's pretty significant. <laughs> that's, sure, yeah. That's, that's huge. You know, I used to think maybe back in the 90s that when we were testing, you know, seven or 8,000 hybrids first generation, that that was a big deal. <laughs> and that's nothing, that's nothing now. So I know that as we look back across corn genetics, one of the things I always find fascinating is, you know, in our program, I think you can really do a lot of tracing back of the material. And I think among corn breeders in general, there's this ability to almost trace that family tree all the way back. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, that ability to get back to, to be able to trace the roots of that genetics all the way back? Well, yeah, this is pretty interesting and kind of fun for me uh, to talk about this. All of our hybrid genetics today originated with open pollinated corn that uh, people had, you know, well over 100 years ago here in the United States. And there were many, many different open pollinated varieties, uh, quite literally hundreds of those. And some of the key open pollinated varieties, hybrid corn started coming on the scene. People would go use those as sources for genetics uh we make inbreds. You have to have inbreds in hybrid corn development. Uh, open pollinated varieties, there were no inbreds pretty much. Right. But people had to use those as sources, those open pollinated varieties as sources to make their inbreds. And so there are a number of families that have sort of popped up out of uh, these open pollinated varieties um, that we uh, like to refer to a lot on the corn breeding side today. So... What I'm kind of talking about here is a lot of good female genetics in the United States, and it's regardless of seed company that you're working with. A lot of good female genetics are derived from a thing out of Iowa State called B73. So this was a uh, inbred that was uh, actually s selected for corn bore tolerance, almost went into their scrap pile. Uh, they kind of saved it uh, sort of by accident. But the parents of that thing are traced back to an open pollinated variety uh, known as reed yellow dent, uh, which was very, very popular in the early 1900s and was probably uh, the number one open pollinated variety of corn in the United States in the early 1900s. So B73, you can sort of trace it back to that sort of, that origin. If we switch gears and talk about male genetics that a lot of people in the industry are, are familiar with. One of the things that uh, a lot of folks, older folks would know was a, an inbred called Missouri 17. So it was University of Missouri. This thing I believe is traced back to uh, an open pollinated variety called Lancaster Surecrop, uh, which came out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> guy named Isaac Hershey. 
you know, there are other families. Those are two of the, the main ones. But interestingly enough, when you take B73 and you cross it to Missouri 17, you get uh, a pretty fantastic hybrid that was very popular uh, here in the Midwest um, back in the early 1970s, late 1960s, I think. So heterotic groups are, are basically families that uh, you try to breed within those families to make new inbreds, but you cross between the families to make hybrids. So the idea is that the hybrid figure heterosis results from the crossing of these two correct. different uh, genetic pools. Yes, correct. Yeah. And I hadn't really thought about uh, uh, never occurred to me we'd be talking about that today. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, to me, that's always fascinating because it, it's kind of the idea of the family tree, right? I mean, you know, I, when you talk to corn breeders, it's amazing that you can go back, you, you know, to some hybrid we have today. And I think based on your story here, you can go back and say, well, you know, this all at least is due in part to some guy in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania I mean, Isaac Hershey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, yes. it, it, yeah. It's just to be able to trace it back with that kind of, and obviously they change over time, but I think that's still very fascinating. So you talked about, you know, inbred development and there's basically, would you say there's kind of four basic, you know, kind of quadrants when yeah. we talk about heterotic families? Yeah. Gen generally. Yeah. That's what we, we, the way we kind of look at it. So out of this, uh, B73 group, which is properly known as the stiff stock synthetic group. There's also a, uh, a subgroup known as B14, which is almost identical, but uh, earlier uh, works well north, doesn't have good disease tolerance to move south. Uh, but B14s, if you look at a lot of uh, seed companies' early genetics, there's usually a B14 somewhere in that background. There's another interesting group uh, called the iodents, and iodents are getting to be very, very uh, popular. The background on these is a little unusual, but they, uh, they tend to have high test weight in your breeding program. You can get away with sometimes using them as males and females, and for whatever reason, the iodent family is carrying along quite a bit of yield punch uh, with it high test weight stuff, uh, just a really, really impressive family. Going back to the Lancaster Sure Crop uh, open pollinator variety that gave us our, our uh, Missouri 17s, um, there's a subfamily out of that that's called the uh, Ohio 43 family. And it's, it, it's interesting with these names, uh, Ohio 43, it's exactly like you would think it came out of Ohio. <laughs> uh, Missouri 17, you know, it was developed in Missouri. But B, B73, the B letter actually stands for Iowa. Because I believe that that, uh, that was developed as part of a USDA testing program. And they had different names for their experimental stations. And for whatever reason, the state of Iowa's experimental stations got stuck with the letter B. <laughs> uh, so, so that's uh, where it came from. Huh? Yes. Yeah. You brought up earlier about, you know, certain genetics being, you know, male or female. Yeah. Um, and as a, you know, someone who's not in, familiar with corn breeding work, I guess it's always been interesting to me, you know, what constitutes that? Because obviously if a, if an inbred can pollinate itself, you know, it's, it's male and female. 
So what makes one more predisposed than the other? Well, if you go look at the female inbreds, uh, as a rule of thumb, uh, they tend to make a little smaller kernel. Uniformity from one kernel to the next is pretty high. If you move over to the male genetics and you look at those ears, you get big, fat kernels that uh, ugly shapes. Um, if uh, we were all going to use male genetics as our seed source, your bag of seed would be like 65 pounds. They don't germinate very well. Uh, but males, of course, are fantastic at making pollen in okay. your seed corn production field. Uh, wonderful for that. Female genetics, uh, on the other hand, not good uh, producers of pollen as a rule of thumb. But uh, those nice uniform kernels give you a high rate of germination. So basically, you can almost walk through anybody's nursery, and if you look at ears of stuff, uh, you can kind of make determinations. And, oh, I bet that's male genetics. I bet this is female-type genetics. Uh, until you come to the iodent uh, material, which uh, in terms of ear size and uh, the way the kernels look, they look very, very female, but very often they're pretty good pollinators at the same time. But generally speaking, it boils down to, you know, the seed set, what, what, what it looks like, what the ear consistency is, what it looks like versus um, what the tassel production is and that, pollen production, that pretty yeah. much puts it in one of two categories. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. it's not that you can't use it the other way around. It's just, you're probably not going to be happy with the product or, or maybe less likely to be happy with the product. That's, that's right. Okay. And you know, my impression is that the way the seed industry is, the way we're using things as males and females, uh, you know, have to remember those inbreds were pulled out of open pollinated sources, open pollinated corn. Well, those guys um, weren't thinking in terms of males and females. And uh, so all of those open pollinated uh, hybrids that people were using probably had really good vigor, seed vigor, really good germination. Seems like the way things went female and went male maybe came later, uh, um, probably in the 1930s as people were making selections then. I don't think it was quite a, it wasn't so natural. It was almost a, say, accidental <laughs> uh, that it went that way. It's like, oh, this seems to work a little bit better as a female. I'll keep doing that. And as they kept breeding the same material, things that kind of worked a little better as female, it actually got to be better sure. working as female. And same way with a male material. If you talk to a farmer who wants to know about Stein corn, what? What do you want them to know about Steincorn? Hold on. My brother is calling me right now, and I'm just going to Oh, let's put it. him on the air. Hold him up to the microphone. You want, want me to do that? <laughs> do it. Why not? Hey, I'm, I'm here with David, and we're recording a podcast. Oh, I'm going to let you go. We were, we were hoping to jazz things up with, <laughs> with little input here, but okay. All right. Well, I can I can jazz things up. <laughs> I'm I'm sure you could, but we'll let you go talk to you later. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye. Okay. Now, what was the question? So, <laughs> when you talk to a farmer who wants to know about Stein in our corn program, what do you want them to know about Stein's corn program? Well, you know, Dad, you know, telling people he's a farmer all all the time. Um, 
he, he treats our our corn program a lot like you know it, it's part of the farming operation and sure he wouldn't put things on our farm that that he wouldn't think that some other farmer wouldn't be able to to plant to to utilize yep and i don't think there are any other breeding programs out there that have a farmer that stands at the top of them and basically decides which hybrids you're going to move forward with which ones are going into the trash and i think that's that's kind of comforting in in some ways it's not uh you know it's not such a clinical thing that uh, you get in other breeding programs where you know it's we've got a software program that's going through and picking out what hybrids we're going to bring <laughs> to our customers so there's a human touch there and an actual farmer uh, mindset attached to what's coming out of our our breeding program i think that's spot on i think that's perfect well thanks warren appreciate you being here today talking about our corn breeding program uh always a pleasure to visit about that and uh appreciate you being on the podcast oh thanks for having me david this was fun make sure to tune in two weeks from now as we kick off our annual women in ag campaign where we talk to some of the women making their mark in the ag industry to never miss an episode subscribe to the stein seedcast wherever podcasts are found thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next time To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseed.com. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Stein has yield.